In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. O God, whose nature and property is ever to have mercy and to forgive, receive our humble petitions, and though we be tied and bound with the chain of our sins, yet let the pitifulness of thy great mercy loose us for the honor of Jesus Christ, our mediator and advocate. Amen. In the interim, we had a number of questions about the matter of the sacrament of penance, so at this time, I'd like to address some specific issues that have been raised by our own clergy. We'll begin with the question of what is the relationship between the absolution offered in the daily offices, the absolution offered at mass, and the absolution offered in the sacrament of penance. When I was examined in the canonical examination for the priesthood in 1996, I was delighted to have this question because it led to a debate between the examining chaplains, during which I was able to remain silent for over an hour. <laughs> they completely ignored me and debated the subject amongst themselves, and I got off the hook. I didn't have to answer the question. It was wonderful. But today we're going to try to answer it faithfully according to the Anglican tradition. Now, it must be said at the outset that the absolution given in the Holy Mass for Anglicans, and according to the Anglican rite, is sacramental. It is a plenary absolution. Pardon and deliver you from some of your sins? Nope. Pardon and deliver you from all your sins. It is sacramental. So this is not unique in the Catholic tradition. For example, in the Polish National Catholic Church, with whom we hope to have full communion very soon, a sister church from the old Catholic tradition, in their celebration of Mass, the priest at the beginning of the liturgy in the penitential rite leads the people in corporate confession and examination of conscience. At the end of which then, he gives absolution in the Latin sacramental form, I absolve you from all your sins. Now, we don't do that in the Anglican rite. We have a different form of absolution, which is actually more similar to that of the Russian Orthodox tradition. Pardon and deliver you from all your sins. This is a sacramental absolution. However, it is conditional. It is conditional upon the penitent's reception of it. Is the penitent receiving it with genuine contrition and sorrow of heart for having offended God's love? Is the penitent truly sorrowful for sin, genuinely repentant? If the soul is and meets that condition, then the absolution given at Mass is sacramental. That settles the question for Anglicans. Therefore, why the sacrament of penance? For this reason. As we said in the first presentation, sin is very, very personal. And if we want to overcome besetting sins, habitual sins, problems, disorders in the spiritual life, it is imperative that we examine our consciences well and that we use this forum of sacramental confession as the means by which we can overcome bad habits, sins that haunt us and pursue us, and begin to overthrow temptation by the grace of God which is given to us in the sacramental life. From the outset, in Anglican Catholicism, 
Sacramental confessions are therapeutic. They are pastoral. They are part of spiritual formation. Now, they do have to be distinguished from spiritual direction. Confession is not spiritual direction. Confession is dealing with the problems of our own sins, taking account of our sins, confessing our sins to God in the presence of his local representative, who is the priest, and receiving from the priest the sacramental assurance and guarantee of the forgiveness of our sins. Spiritual direction is a far more in-depth process and the unfolding of one's whole spiritual life in which one walks with a spiritual director on a spiritual journey. That is a process of intensive prayer, recollection, and reflection shared with someone who accompanies us in the life of spiritual growth and development. That is spiritual direction. The sacrament of penance is designed specifically and intended specifically to address the problem of sin. So there is a distinction between confession and spiritual direction. Without confession, spiritual direction will bear no fruit. We can go to confession, though, and not even have a spiritual director, although that's not recommended. We should have a confessor and a spiritual director, and preferably they should be different people. Of course, a confessor will always be a priest. But having a spiritual director is a different process than going to sacramental confession. So for Anglicans, yes. When we say morning and evening prayer privately, we of course don't have the benefit of absolution, but if the priest gives us absolution in morning and evening prayer and uses the form in the prayer book, and particularly, especially at mass, if we go to the general confession and we bring to that general confession a genuine act of contrition and a sincere and, and absolutely true repentance for our sins, then the absolution given at Mass is sacramental. So from the time of the Oxford Movement, we have promoted sacramental confession as the greatest benefit for overcome, overcoming the problems in our spiritual lives related to sin, and we advocate for it as the principal way by which we can actually begin to grow in overcoming sin and advancing in virtue. The forum of confession, therefore, is the forum of sanctification and advancement in the spiritual life. And we urge our people to come to confession. Let me also say, please, that no priest has any business hearing a confession if he does not make one himself. The way that a priest learns most effectively to hear confessions, to offer spiritual counsel and advice, and to give absolution along with guidance for overcoming sin and temptation is for the priest to be himself a regular penitent. We would urge priests not to make a practice of hearing confessions in a regular way unless they themselves are penitents and have a confessor. In my own life, I made my first confession at the age of 14 uh, with a wonderful priest in the Episcopal Church years and years ago and have been a regular penitent since. It was also mentioned earlier that we should go to confession if we are practicing this wonderful gift as often as we feel it is needed. 
When we were in our retreat in Asheville, the question was offered, and my response then is what I would offer now, which is, how often do you go to the doctor? The confessor is a spiritual doctor. And so we should go to confession as often as we would go to see a physician. Some of us have to go more often to a physician than other people, but we need to go. And we encourage our priests and deacons to go because it is only by going to confession then that we can ourselves really grow. And in the case of priests, then we are equipped to hear the confessions of others. In fact, priests learn more about hearing confessions by making their own than probably any other thing. Now, something else that was raised is this. What if one has a penitent who makes a confession and in the context of confession reveals that there is genuine need requested and help desired and required, but it would require the assistance of the priest outside of the interior forum of confession? This can happen quite often. Whatever the practical circumstances may be, there may be a penitent who really needs the priest's help, but needs it outside of the forum of confession. Well, that is permitted if the penitent gives permission. And if the penitent gives permission, then the priest would be able to assist that person outside the forum of confession with whatever that may be, if it's a spiritual problem or a physical problem or emotional problem, getting that person help by a doctor or a counselor, whatever that may be, or maybe tangible, driving them to the store or whatever it may be. But if the penitent gives permission, then the priest is allowed to use whatever information has been given then to assist that person so long as the confidentiality of the confession is not broken and that has to be maintained. But yes, with the penitent's permission, this can be done. Now, in regard to the sacramental ministration of the sacrament of penance, we need to be mindful that the priest is an instrument to whom is one making the confession. The confession is being made to God, to God in the presence of the priest. The priest is an instrument. He is an agent of divine grace. He is the minister of the sacrament. Just as the priest is the minister of the sacrament in baptism, so the priest is the minister of the sacrament of confession. But his role is instrumental. It is a role of agency. Uh, one of our beloved brethren had the wonderful phrase, magic man. This is not magic, and priests are not magic men, okay? So the priest is exercising a ministry of Christ's absolution and forgiveness in the name and person of Christ, in persona Christi Capitus. What is the priest? He is in persona Christi Capitus. He is in the person of Christ, the head of the church. He is the instrument of Christ. So he is administering a sacrament of God's grace. Now it is true that the priest has authority in the matter of confessions. He can withhold absolution. If the penitent is not genuinely sorrowful or penitent or contrite for the sins committed, if the penitent refuses to abandon the sin that has been confessed, the priest may withhold absolution. And there are cases where the priest should withhold absolution. There are instances 
like that. Well, we could take an example. For example, let's say that a penitent comes and he is cohabitating with a woman who is not his wife. And he tells the priest, after he confesses sin, I refuse to end the sexual relationship. I'm not going to do it. At that point, the priest has heard from the penitent that he's not a penitent. And he's not sorry for his sin. And so at that point, he cannot give absolution. Absolution is conditional upon the penitence and the repentance of the person who comes. And the way that the person manifests that penitent heart is by making the confession and then receiving the counsel of the priest and accepting the penance that is imposed. And there should always be a penance as a sign of our love for God. It's not that we're trying to prove to God that we're holy. No. The act of penance is a sign, a token offered to God that we love him and that we genuinely seek to be restored to him and that we wish to forsake and abandon our sin. And when the penitent accepts that penance, that means that the person has determined to amend one's life and start over again. And if the penitent accepts that penance, then absolution can be given. But there are rare cases, very odd, that someone would come to sacramental confession, especially in Anglicanism, since Anglicanism does not mandate sacramental confession. It would be very strange to have a penitent come and then refuse the penance or refuse to abandon the sin, but it does happen. So in Anglicanism, we say, the old saying was, all may, none must, some should. Eh, that's not good enough. All may, none must, most should. Most people should go to sacramental confession. Maybe there's some of you out there who are living in a state of perpetual beatific vision, you're in a unitative state with God, and you have no need for confession. If you are one of those people, I want to talk to you after this presentation, please, and beg your prayers, because you are a saint. Most of us are not like that, and most of us need to go to confession because it heals the soul. As we said earlier, the grace of absolution is the Holy Ghost himself working deeply within us, probing our hearts, exploring our soul, moving throughout us to bring to healing and restoration every aspect of the interior person. And that kind of grace is simply irreplaceable. And the process that goes into making a good confession with first the examination of conscience beforehand then the confession of sin, which is in itself a healing act, a profoundly healing act, and then to have the discussion with the priest about ways in which sins can be overcome and new virtues attained. In the spiritual life, this is of supreme importance and is in fact quite irreplaceable. Nothing takes its place. So we encourage people certainly to do it, and we pray that as a result of what we are praying about and talking about today, that each of you will become an apostle, an apostle of absolution, that you will promote this wonderful sacrament in your parishes, in your congregations, and encourage your people to come and receive this for spiritual healing. So again, we emphasize that the priest exercises a sacramental ministry in which it is the Lord Jesus Christ who offers absolution, forgiveness, reconciliation, mercy through a sacramental gift of his grace. The priest is the instrument, 
And sometimes the priest does have to be the judge. There are times where the priest, the father confessor, must exercise spiritual discipline and judgment in a particular case if we get an odd penitent who refuses to accept what the confessor might offer to him. So just a few notes then about the questions that we have regarding confession. Let's move on. Now generally, in the tradition of the church, we use two different terms, penance and repentance, interchangeably, but they do in fact have slightly different meanings. Although it should be articulated that in practice the two realities ought not to be divorced from each other. Penance refers to the sacrament of confession and to the offering of the penitent to God a sign and a symbol of one's repentance. We offer to God a penance. It is a sign, a token of our love for God, of our sorrow for having offended his love through our sins. It is a sign of our desire to amend our lives, to turn away from sin, and to live according to the assignment of the priest in the internal forum of sacramental confession. The priest will give us a penance, and we offer it because we love God and we want to avoid future sin. More generally, Christians should live lives not only of repentance, of turning away from sin and seeking to live a holier and better life, but also penance, repentance and penance, Penance is offering sacrifices and mortifications to God in order to achieve union with the crucified Lord. Every real Christian life is not only repentant, it's also penitential. Penance indicates a willingness to offer the natural and inevitable sufferings and difficulties of our mortal lives in union with Jesus Christ so that we may be more deeply conformed to the life and sacrifice of our blessed Savior. Penance is a reality that should dominate our lives. We are called to offer it up. As the old nun said, we are to offer it up. Christ is reproducing his life in us, and that life, especially for priests, is a life of sacrifice. Love suffers. Love hurts. Love has to offer it up. And so our penances are the way by which we offer up to the Lord our lives. We make our lives a sacramental representation of the Lord Jesus in the world, allowing ourselves to participate personally and actively in the work of Christ's redemption for all mankind. This is particularly true of the priest. We are called to imitate in our lives what we do at the altar. And what do we do at the altar? We offer the sacrifice of man's redemption. Every Eucharist is a representation of the sacrifice of Calvary. Every Mass is the anamnesis of the passion, the cross, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord. And so we as priests take into our hands the paten and the chalice, and we offer the life of the world on behalf of the life of the world. And we are called to be conformed to that life, and that is a life of offering, that is a life of sacrifice. 
The word sacrifice, by the way, is sacrificium in Latin, sacrificere in Latin, to make holy. We are making the world holy by the consecration of our lives and our own sacrifices to God in union with Christ's one perfect sacrifice, which is in heaven and is on the altar. So a priestly life is a life defined by sacrifice. St. Paul writes, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. What? Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. St. Paul is saying that, that Christ's suffering, he's not saying that Christ's suffering is incomplete, but he is saying that by what he's suffering, he's filling up Christ's sacrifice. This is not some deep, dark, dank Romanism. This is St. Paul. St. Paul is saying that we participate in Christ's sacrifice by our own suffering. No longer must human beings endure evil in vain. In Christ, our penance makes our experience of evil redemptive, even salvific, for ourselves and other people. Do we ever think about the fact that when we are in pain or suffering ourselves, that we can offer that for the sake of other people? We can, and we should. In our prayer, we can. We can take the evils that we endure, the injustices, the mistreatment, the calumny, the physical pain, illness, mental distress, uh, psychological trouble. We can take these and we can offer them to God for the sake of other people, for the salvation of others, to fill up for Christ's sake what is needed in the body. We can do that. In penance, natural suffering is totally transformed into spiritual communion with the incarnate Lord. Penance signifies our amendment of life and our will to transform and be transformed in the spiritual life. By sacrificing something of ourselves to Christ, we become joined to him more deeply and profoundly in the cross of Calvary. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We should recognize that from Philippians chapter 2. Let Christ's mind be in your mind. As we offer ourselves, our sufferings, our penances to Christ, Christ's mind is to be in our mind and in our heart. The Lord Jesus calls us to conform our wills to his will. That is salvation, the alignment of our will with God's will. And we are called to a perfect love and obedience of the Father in Christ's perfect love and obedience to the Father. We are sons in the Son, filii in filio. We are adopted as the sons and daughters of God. We are adopted by grace to become by grace what God is by nature. Jesus wants to reproduce in us his own divine sonship. And the way that happens 
is through a life of penance, of continual conversion and offering ourselves up to Christ to be sanctified. Okay, that's penance. Now, that sounds easy to do, doesn't it? Not really. Uh, That's why we go to confession. (laughs) That's what confession is all about. We go to confession, it'll be a lot easier then to live out a life of penance. We said already that repentance is to change the heart and the mind. The Greek New Testament word metanoia means to change one's mind, or if you will, to change one's heart, to turn one's heart to God. Contrition in the heart, confession on the lips, amendment in the life. We should memorize that. It's very helpful for us to think of the Christian life this way, contrition in the heart, confession on the lips, amendment in the life. Jesus exercised what the New Testament calls kenosis, or self-emptying. There can be no genuine repentance, no genuine self-emptying, or offering of the self in, in humility, in union with our Lord's kenosis, without a genuine repentance, a deliberate forsaking of our sin, and a committed desire to obey God's holy will and commandments. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is itself an ongoing process of abandoning evil and finding renewal and restoration in communion with God by his grace. Real repentance happens, or should happen, at every moment of our lives. It is essential for growing and advancing in the life of grace and holiness. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.21. All right, let's talk about some practical aspects then of what confession can look like for us in our Christian lives. In order faithfully to live out our vocation in the Anglican rite, one should receive the sacrament of penance at least once a year. That's the ancient tradition, preferably in Holy Week or Eastertide, in preparation for the making of one's Easter communion. In Anglicanism, the reception of the sacrament of penance is absolutely voluntary, but that doesn't mean it's not important. No Anglican must receive this sacrament in order to be considered a practicing Christian, but, and there's the adversative word, but, as we have discovered, this sacrament is quintessentially important and should be viewed and received by any person as being important. Now, any person who is troubled and disturbed in conscience because of sin, or any Christian who wishes to to deepen one's spiritual life and advance in the way that leads to heaven, ought to use the sacrament of penance. No one should approach our Lord's precious body and blood in Holy Communion in a state of conscious mortal sin. And for this reason, if there's any question at all about whether or not one is healthy spiritually, if there's any question about the state or the health of one's soul, then one can and should seek 
the spiritual counsel and advice of a priest, and receive this sacrament for the forgiveness of all sins, and then one can approach the altar properly and reverently. It was Archbishop Michael Ramsey writing about this who said the problem with Anglicans in the modern day is that there is a tripping to the altar, a traipsing to the altar. People just go up and receive Holy Communion and don't think about their sins anymore. And that is a very dangerous thing. And we who, the, who are the guardians of the Blessed Sacrament, we who are ordained to be the stewards and the custodians of God's mysteries, and in particular, the most blessed sacrament, it is in our purview to ensure that people receive the sacraments properly and in such a way that they are to their benefit and not to their spiritual injury. In the modern era, we tend to lose sight of 1 Corinthians 11, where St. Paul writes in extremely clear and unmistakable ways that people who approach the blessed sacrament in a state of grievous sin endanger their souls. Let a man examine himself before he eat of that bread and drink of the cup. And then he goes on to say that he who does not discern the Lord's body eats and drinks damnation to himself. So it is important for us to remind our people of the necessity of approaching Holy Communion in a state of repentance. And even if they haven't availed themselves of sacramental confession, hopefully they've made a good examination of conscience and have faithfully said the general confession and in a genuine desire to overcome and amend from sin, receive general absolution at Mass. But since we are indeed responsible for the salvation of the souls entrusted to our care, we should remind our people that we need to make an examination of conscience before communion. And if there is any doubt about the state of their soul or our, our souls as well, we need to avail ourselves of confession. It's a very important aspect of how Anglicans use the sacrament of penance. As the 1662 prayer book puts it, it reminds us in the exhortation at Mass, let him, a penitent, come to me or to some other minister of God's word and open his grief that by ministry of God's holy word, he may receive the benefit of absolution as may tend to the quieting of the conscience and the removing of all scruple and doubtfulness. Now this exact phrase was changed in the American prayer book, which again is unfortunate. The American prayer book is actually sort of watered down when it comes to sacramental confession. That's unfortunate. So we can boost it with the English prayer book, the 1662 prayer book. Maybe some of us should form the Society for the Promotion of the 1662 Prayer Book in America. I don't know, it's pretty good. It's actually a locus classicus of Anglicanism. It's a classical text, and the 1662 Prayer Book is excellent in these matters. Its Eucharistic rite is not as good as ours, but it has so much to offer in other areas, and this is one of them. And by the way, by the way, if you are a vicar or a rector, we hope that you're using the exhortations on the three Sundays of the Christian year. Please raise your hand if you use them in your church. Good, good. We should love the prayer book, love the prayer book. 
The prayer book is our magisterium. It is our teaching office. Use it, love it, know it. Don't be like those prayer book idolaters who say you have to use it, but then they never pray it and don't know what's inside of it and have never studied it. We want to love the prayer book. So that's another commercial. Love the prayer book and use its theology. Use its content. And the exhortations, which are said on the first Sunday in Advent, the first Sunday in Lent, and Trinity Sunday, are a magnificent reminder to our people of their need for self-examination and repentance. It was wonderful to see virtually every hand go up. That's wonderful. So we should use these exhortations and use the material that's found in the prayer book. It's amazing what's in the prayer book. It actually teaches the Catholic faith. It's wonderful. It's a shock. There it is. It's fantastic. So let's please use the Book of Common Prayer. Although I will say the English prayer book has advantages over the American, but the American also has advantages over the English book. To use a version of the old Anglican adage, as we've said, all may, none must, but most of us really should. All Anglicans are invited and should be encouraged to use this great sacrament to their spiritual benefit. This sacrament increases grace, guarantees forgiveness, allows the penitent carefully to examine the conscience and the soul, especially as one faces the brutality and the horror of sin and its consequences. How often do we really think about sin in terms of brutality and horror? Do we really think of our own sins that way? How cash are we about our sins? We all tend to be far too casual. It is so easy to think that, oh, you know, God loves me so much, I don't really need to worry about that. Wrong. That's the sin of presumption. There are two great sins in the spiritual life, despair and presumption. Despair is the sin that says that God does not love me, cannot love me, will not forgive me, is incapable of forgiving me, and I am damned. I am lost, and God cannot save me. That is the sin of despair. The opposite of it is the casual approach to God, sort of the buddy Christ. If you ever had the misfortune to see the movie Dogma back in the 1990s, there was a statue unveiled of Christ for a new generation to appeal to the people of our own time. It was the buddy Christ, the, the one who is your friend, not the one who is the Lord and King and Master of the universe, which is what he truly is. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King. And so the sin of presumption fails to recognize the seriousness of our own trespass against God and presumes upon God his mercy, but without genuine love for him. A very serious sin. So we don't typically, in our modern day, and in the ancient day as well, think of sin in terms of horror. It should horrify us that we separate ourselves from God. But how often do we really think of it in those terms? The sacrament of penance allows us to see ourselves as God sees us. 
That is, if anything else, what it really does most effectively. We begin to see ourselves as God sees us. And when we see ourselves as God sees us, that should fill us with a sense of horror about what we have done in separating ourselves by our own will. The God who loves us infinitely. The God who has a mad love for us. God wants to have a love affair with us. He is madly in love with us. And what do we do? We turn our backs on him. We reject his goodness. We reject him in the face of all the things he does for us. This is the nature of sin. And we honestly don't contemplate it the way that we should and take into account how dreadful the loss of God truly is when we sin. The sacrament of penance is the ideal forum then in which to look at that and to see it from a fresh perspective and to begin truly to see what the consequences of our sins are. But here's the beauty of it. Once we recognize the brutality of our sin, which put Christ on the cross, when we recognize the horror of our sin, which causes potentially in us the loss of God, then we have the grace of God to forgive us. And this grace of God is given to us not only to forgive us, but to give us a new life. Every life after confession is a new life. By confessing our personal sins to the priest who awaits us in love to offer spiritual advice and counseling to provide this gift of, of forgiveness, we recognize the impact, the consequences, the error of our sin. We see the need to eliminate sin from our lives and we realize that God has completely forgiven us. To put it another way, the sacrament of absolution applies the blood of Jesus Christ to us. The blood was applied to us in baptism. The blood is applied to us at the altar in Holy Communion. And in absolution, the blood is applied to us there so that we are forgiven by Christ's blood. We have to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we are washed in the blood of the Lamb by the way the Lamb gives to us through the sacraments. And the confession is that sacrament that over and over again can wash us in the blood of the Lamb. That is the kind of thing I wish our evangelical friends could hear and understand today, that we are evangelicals too. We are evangelicals who receive the gospel, and we understand that the gospel is a kingdom that is extended to us through the sacraments. And Christ's forgiveness, won on the cross, is given to us in a special way in absolution. No one enjoys the painful process of confession, but all should rejoice in its benefit and the graces for the soul. It's unfortunate that more traditional Anglicans don't go to confession and absolution in the sacrament of penance and receive the special graces that come with it. And although we may not be required to use it, 
it is indeed glorious. We know that we don't typically use confessionals or confession boxes. Rather, in Anglicanism, the penitent makes his confession most normally before the priest as the penitent kneels at the altar rail facing the altar. Usually the priest is seated in the sanctuary, poised to hear and receive the confession quietly. And that is a beautiful symbol, isn't it? We go unto the altar of God to receive the bread of life and the cup of salvation. We go unto the altar of God to receive the power of the cross, the forgiveness of sins by his grace in absolution. We should note that penance is mentioned twice in the 1928 American book. It is referred to, at least hazily, in the second exhortation in the Mass on page 88, but it is mentioned specifically in the Visitation of the Sick on page 313 in the prayer book. So if any Anglican were to come to you and say, Anglicanism does not have auricular confession, just turn to page 313 and there it is. You can show that it is truly otherwise. Penance clearly has an important function within the life of the church, especially for those who are troubled in their souls after having committed particular sins, or also people who are sick or near death or wish to enter paradise free from the stain of sin. We should all use this sacrament at every opportunity for our spiritual welfare. Think of sacramental confession as a school of sanctity. It is a teacher, a teacher of repentance, a teacher of amendment, a divinely appointed means by which God imparts the forgiveness of sins to us. And remember that the priest does not from any individualized or personal power forgive sins, no, we administer a sacrament of forgiveness as we act in the name and person of Christ. It is our privilege, it is our joy, it is our dignity as priests to represent the Lord in our ministry within the Holy Catholic Church. Now we will pause here for our break and we will gather for our midday prayer in about 25 minutes and have lunch. Thank you very much.